Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Leanne Nguyen speaking to you from Voice America. Thank you for tuning in to the hour. And and I mean thank you in the most uh, profound way to you uh, for listening in. Because when you do so, um, you accept my offering. You are confirming for me my mission and you are gratifying my desire for connection. Now, what is my mission, you know, for this hour, for this radio show? It is to create a tiny brief space where we have a chance to look at one another, to listen to each other, to talk to each other, a chance to catch a glimpse through my conversations with my guests, a glimpse into what makes us who we are, of what makes us human and therefore, hopefully, to grab hold of the gift and the responsibility that we inherently, inevitably have towards one another. And that gift, that responsibility, is to honor and protect our humanity, to provide the support for one another in our effort to be as fully human as we can, as we are meant to be. I have spoken at length throughout the season about this mission of mine, where it comes from, what it is about, what I'm trying to do. And I hope you will refer back to it through previous episodes. Um, Or if, if you're just joining in, I hope, really, you will check it out. If only to find encouragement and validation for your own mission. Because I really believe that fundamentally, we all, every day, we all try to be human. We all try to succeed at this business of being alive, of being human. It's just that we don't name it consciously, or we are distracted by it, or sometimes we are scared away from it. Now, just so you know, I don't think that I'm crazy or alone in this mission. Just recently, I I found out that Sir Richard Branson, you know, Sir Branson, the founder of Virgin Group, uh, recently announced that his goal for his workers, his company, is to, quote, help create 100% human human beings. How about that, huh? Not productivity or technological advances, but to create 100% human human beings. And also, I had a chance to um, to, to to talk to Margaret Wheatley, uh, um, an author and coach of Global Leaders, and she recently issued a call for us all to be quote warriors of the human spirit because she feels that the human element, the human community that we're in, has entered a stage of decadence, of near collapse, and is in need of warriors who would show up, take a stand and protect the human spirit. So I feel very confirmed and validated when I uh, hear of or, or, or am in contact of, uh, with, with these things. There is something precious here that is at stake for us. We need to acknowledge it, tend to it, protect it, show up and take a stand for it. So every hour, every week on this show, I want to acknowledge and take a stand for the fact that we are human, for the things that make us human. Now, what is it? 
as I have often said to you, I do not dare write up a list. Um, although I'm thinking, you know, it's the end of the year and and lists are very popular, right? Maybe I should do like 10 best things about being human or 20 steps to take toward being 100% human. Well, uh, good luck with that. Uh, no, my thing is to ask questions, as you know, throughout this season, questions that would put you on a quest for yourself. And my offering is an urging, not final definitive answers, an urging to you to go back to yourself and ask yourself, what makes me human? Am I fully human as I want to be? What help do I need towards staying human? Ask that and go live your answer. So each time that you tune in from wherever you are, and I know from the stats that I get back that you are tuning in from many different corners of the world and from both coasts of the U.S., when you listen in, you are taking up my call to step into a particular kind of conversation with yourself. And when you do that, you agree to consider my urging to make contact with your life, with the world of humans in a particular way. And I thank you for it. I thank you because when you do that, you help create the world that I wish to live in, where people take their humanity seriously and tenderly, where people take the time to be with, to connect, to tend to one another, however briefly, however imperfectly, but with the acknowledgement that we are connected, that we are human. Um, I'm thinking of, of a, uh, one of my favorite quotes by uh, a Buddhist teacher, Zhou uh, uh, Trungpa, who said, we cannot change the way the world is, but by opening to the world as it is, we may discover that gentleness decency and bravery are available, not only to us, but to all human beings. So my wish, which I have been indulging in via doing this radio show, is to offer some inspiration and, and some proof that you should open to the world, to human life, to other humans, so as to discover the beauty and bravery that are available to you. Now, as I announced the last week, I'm not going to renew uh, with Voice America when the contracted and uh, run would end at the end of January. So I have reserved the month of January, my last month on the show with the network uh, to a kind of, of uh, a tete-a-tete with you, sharing with you thoughts about a thing that is most dear to me and that I devote my work to, uh, um, which is you know, how do we support each other? How do we find the resources and support to stay human? That's for January. For this week, this last week of the year and this last week before I stop interviewing guests, I thought to myself, you know, it's the holidays. What's my gift? What do I want? Well, I want to learn something. I want to make some small difference. I want to tell the world about something that matters to me. So I, I decided to feature a nonprofit organization that was founded uh, by two fellow Vietnamese women that is based in my home country of Vietnam and that does work for my people of Vietnam. That's right, my people, <laughs> my home country of Vietnam. Even though I left it close to 40 years ago, it is still my home. Why? Well, what makes it still my home, you wonder? Because that's where I had my first breath, where I had, when I first, I was first held, where I first learned about being a human, where I first learned about love and death. 
and therefore about life. So today, I wish to uh, let you know about Pacific Links Foundation. Now, the mission of Pacific Links is to empower women and youth in Vietnam to support the, the sustainable development of communities in Vietnam through helping girls and young women access life skills, um, educational and economic opportunities to build for themselves a safe and healthy life. And there is an important crucial component to the work of the foundation that I intend to uh, to focus um, on my to focus on in my conversation uh, today, uh, which is their work on fighting human trafficking, which is rampant in the regions in Vietnam, uh, especially those at border with Cambodia, Laos, and China. Um, now, the, the the, the people at Pacific Links Foundation work to prevent trafficking and to rescue girls who have been trafficked and to help them reintegrate into society. When I think about their mission through the lens of the questions that I pose for us on this radio show, the questions of what makes us human, how do we support one another in staying alive as humans, when I think about that, the mission of the people at this foundation of fighting against the forces that dehumanize young girls. Because really, trafficking is about reducing humans to basic interchangeable commodities. You know, and the, the mission of finding the means and resources to restore or maximize the potential that each young person has in her. Their mission meets up with my mission on this show and with my life and my work in general. So to speak of the work of the Pacific Links Foundation, I've been able to literally grab Mimi Vu <laughs> to spend the hour with me to talk to us about information. I'm literally like saying I'm grabbing her because she's like, you know, flying all over the globe and she happens to be uh, in Houston today. Now, briefly, Mimi is a native of Flint, Michigan. She was educated at the University of Michigan and then at New York University <clears throat> in international nonprofit policy and management. So she, over the last 15 years or so, she has worked at various places in New York, Paris, and Vietnam in communications, policy, development, and advocacy. And uh, but since 2006, I think, Mimi, she's been based in Vietnam. Now, currently, um, for the past few years, Mimi is uh, the Director of Advocacy and Partnerships for Pacific Links Foundation. Now, I think that means she takes care of initiatives related to, to, to um, um, I think, like global and grassroots advocacy, fundraising, and a communications. Maybe you can tell me more about what it is that you do exactly, but that's how I understand it. Um, she develops strategic partnerships with, you know, governments, law enforcement, private foundations, corporations, and so on to advance the mission of Pacific Lakes. So, uh, with no further ado, Mimi, welcome to the show, and I, I look forward to having you educate me and, and the listeners more about what you do and uh, and what you find out through your work about the human condition. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, let me, let, let me start... Let me start first. And, you know, the foundation has been in existence for, uh, what, te more than 15 years, you know, and it's garnered a lot of, of, of awards and recognition. But maybe you can educate us and then ground us before we go into the details of, of what it does, really, and the difference that it makes in the world right now. Sure, sure. So, um, 
about the, the background of human trafficking or why, why this problem is a problem for Vietnam. Um, sure. It's, yeah. um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one because when I tell people, you know, I, I live in Vietnam and I do this work, it's surprising. My reaction is usually one of two. One is coming, I guess, more from the U.S. side of Vietnam being this, you know, still war-torn country, or on the other side of it being this fantastically growing um, economy in the world. So why would we have this problem with trafficking? Um, but it is because of that. It's because Vietnam is probably 65% under the age of 45. You know, mm. people, most of the people have been born after the war. They're hungry. They're young. They want to support their families because everything goes back to the family um, in mm-hmm. our culture. Um, but they don't have the resources or they haven't had access to the opportunities that we have in the West in terms of education and jobs in order to do that um, in the proper way. So they end up taking risks, which leads them into very dangerous situations, Um, the worst of all leading to trafficking. On top of that, you have the external global globalization forces um, acting on Vietnam. Um, When you said before that uh, human trafficking dehumanizes people into basic commodities, that is exactly it. Um, and that's something that I say over and over again, that human trafficking, it's a business. It's mm-hmm. one of the lucrative businesses in the world. And it's a business that runs um, without regulation, without taxes, mm. without mm-hmm. any sort of um, limits to it. Um, mm-hmm. So Vietnam, right now, we, you know, we, we are kind of the, the shining light of development in Southeast Asia and Asia. You know, the GDP has been growing um, year on year out for around 7%, almost 7% over the last, you know, 8, 9 years. Um, it, it's where everyone wants to invest because the market is there. You know, as mm-hmm. I mentioned before, we have a very huge population, about 95 million, very young population that's growing consumer-based and future employee-based. But... Mm-hmm. The dangerous side of that is that we are one of the top source countries for traffic or trafficking victims around the world, especially in Asia and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, about 80% of our total victims go to China, um, and that's a direct result of China's one-child policy and gender preference, um, which has resulted in about 30 million missing women since 1979. Um, so that's the same number of men now who are of marriageable age who don't have wives because the supply just isn't there. So Mm -hmm. they draw from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, Other places that Vietnamese are sold, Vietnamese uh, women and girls mainly are sold to are also uh, Cambodia and Malaysia. Um, I was just in Malaysia a couple of weeks ago meeting with the Malaysian government there um, because Vietnam, we are one-third of all trafficking victims. Um, Number one, yeah, and number one for foreign prostitutes in Malaysia, and also um, number one for suspected victims of trafficking in Malaysia. Um, mm-hmm. One third for all confirmed victims of trafficking. Um, mm-hmm. Cambodia is another major destination um, because it's a major sex international sex destination, um, especially for pedophiles. Um, so you have um, an age range of victims um, in terms of victim profile that's much younger and mo- mainly drawn from the Mekong Delta region. Um, what unfortunately sets Vietnam apart from all the other Asian countries is our, our um, kind of position in Europe. We are number one for child trafficking victims in the UK and number two hmm. for adults. 
Okay. And Maybe, hang on, hang on here because um, let me just interrupt you here. I, I need to break uh, for a very brief commercial thing. And when yep. we come back, I want to uh, talk more. I mean, you've laid kind of like the, the, the dire picture, you know, and let's talk more about specifically the forces that make this situation possible. All right. We'll be right back after a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. It's time to have a healthier relationship with money. Use it with purpose to create the life you envision. At Thinking Big Financial, your future starts right now. Services include financial planning and investment management. It's not just about the numbers. It's about how they fit into your life. Reach out to Jim to start thinking big about your own financial life. Because isn't it time? For more information, visit thinkingbigfinancial.com. That's thinkingbigfinancial.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Mimi, I know that the foundation was uh, founded uh, about, what, 15 or so years ago by a Vietnamese expat, right? Now, I was uh, flashing back during the break to a memory that I had for about, like, maybe 9, 10 years ago when I was on a mission in in Chad, you know, during the conflict of uh, the Darfur conflict. And I remember sitting in the hut somewhere, and um, this African man was uh, making lunch for me. And he, when he found out that I was from Vietnam, he pointed to a bag of rice next to him and said, that's made in Vietnam. We wish to be like them. They made it, <laughs> you know. They, they made it out of the war. They are taking good care of their people. They're making a lot of money, and the country is doing good. This was like 10 years ago. Now, yeah. the founder, more than, longer than that, before that, had the foresight to found this. So, 
tell me about how this started, how she caught on to the problem and how this is possible. This is really like the the ugly underbelly of so-called economic development of a war-torn country. Absolutely. Um, So Pacific Links Foundation was founded in 2001 by actually a group of um, Vietnamese refugees um, in Silicon Valley, who are all based in Silicon Valley, um, and who had done very well for themselves, mainly in the tech sector. Um, Mm -hmm. And so initially, we were founded as an anti-trafficking organization. We were founded as um, exactly what the mission is, to kind of enrich cultural development, because what... um, the original founders had seen is that they knew that, you know, Vietnam was developing and they themselves would have a hand in it, whether it was through investments mm-hmm. themselves or through um, development projects. And they needed to make sure that the population um, were was well-educated enough and well-trained enough in order to handle the incoming tech boom or whatever else, manufacturing boom, you know, that... Um, the, the overseas Vietnamese wanted to invest in. And so that was the original um, kind of genesis for the organization. And it wasn't until 2005, about four years after the organization was founded, that um, Pacific Links uh, implemented the first anti-trafficking program, which was a scholarship and empowerment program that exists today, um, targeting mm-hmm. at-risk girls in the Mekong Delta. And the reason why is because they were seen on the ground um, that there was this pervasive and growing issue of girls going missing um, mm-hmm. into Cambodia, into Malaysia, um, because and also on the on the Vietnam Chinese border into China, um, mm-hmm. mainly to look for work. And mm-hmm. so they thought, okay, if we can educate them and give parents a reason to keep their daughters in school instead of taking them out of school to work in the fields or or go work at you know in a cafe or as a a housekeeper or something, then keeping the, the Vietnamese girls in the system, in the school system, means that they'll be better educated, that they'll have better earning opportunities, and they'll be better able to contribute to their families into the um, economy. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, and then the initial thought was like, oh, we'll just do it for five years, Vietnam's growing, and um, then it'll <laughs> be, you know, over. <laughs> and that's certainly, unfortunately, it's not the case. Never um, underestimate the depth of greed <laughs> in oh, the consumers, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the the because uh, it's mainly Vietnamese trafficking Vietnamese. So I always say never underestimate the um, Vietnamese ingenuity and practicality when it comes to making well, money. And, and, no, but there's there's such a hungry market for it, you know, for child brides yeah, and as yeah. you said, the pedophiles and, you know, the the, 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 the sex yeah. appetite and blah, blah, blah. Uh, okay, so then five years into it, it is deepening and growing, the mission? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, growing what, and spreading. What makes these girls... Specifically, what makes these girls vulnerable, and what is the typical journey of a, of, of a young, typical young country girl? Well, it depends on the destination market. So, as I was saying before, about 80% of Vietnam's total victims stay within Asia, mainly to China. And about 80% of those victims are women and girls. However, mm-hmm. when I talk about trafficking to Europe, um, and again, we are number one for child trafficking victims in the UK, number two for adults, and number one across all the transit countries as well, or top three or five at least. 65% uh-huh. of them are men and boys, okay? So 
you can look at the entire population of Vietnam and say we're all at risk for being trafficked. So it's not restricted uh-huh. to only girls. It, okay. it depends on the on the destination market. So for take take China for example, um, which is the the top um, uh, destination country, the typical journey there really isn't a typical journey because again I go back to the ingenuity of the traffickers. We will use any ruse or any um, tactic to lure um, women and girls over into China um, because there's such a need and it's so lucrative that it's now expanded beyond the northern border. It's, it's across the entire country. So we're dealing with the victims, you know, who come all the way from the Mekong Delta, um, who are transported all the way up um, through the country into, into China. Um, mainly, I would say the most common ways are um, luring people over with the promise of work. Uh, overall, that is the number one way, um, no matter which destination in the country it is. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically with ethnic minority girls on the uh, like Hmong or like Red Zhao uh, uh-huh. on the border, they also use Facebook Messenger is now one of the top, if not the top recruitment tool. So just like we have in the U.S., um, traffickers will hire guys to pose as boyfriends and friends, you know, girls on, on Facebook Messenger. And this, this is what you call the perfect storm of globalization and hormones, I would say. So you're dealing with 14-year-old girls um, to seen, you know, regular teenagers who also come from cultures that um, marry earlier, right? So ethnic minorities tend to get married at, marry at an earlier age, much earlier age, around 15, 16 years old. Um, on top of that, they're isolated in the mountain regions, but mm-hmm. in Vietnam, the, you know, we have the, the influx of cheap data and cell phones, smartphones, right. especially right. from the China side. So, you know, uh, unlimited 3G bill per month is like equivalent of 10 U.S. dollars, right? Okay. And so these girls who have been, you know, never left their village, all of a sudden, with the push of a button, have access to the entire world. And combine that with just a natural teenage, you know, hormonal, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, a glee for boys. And mm-hmm. also um, their cultural... Um, kind of tradition of looking for husbands around this age. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it all combines. And so what happens is, say, if, you know, a young man or an agent will groom 20, 50 girls, maybe more on Facebook Messenger, you know, mm-hmm. course them, mm-hmm. get engaged to them on Facebook before they even meet. And then um, after a couple months, say, okay, you know, let's meet. I want you to meet my family. You know, I'm so excited to marry you bring your friends, it'll be a celebration. Um, and then she finally meets him in person, fully trusting him because, of course, he's going to be her husband. And then she and her friends get drugged or, you know, um, taken to go drinking and they get drunk and pass out or are outright kidnapped and brought right across the border, which is extremely porous, um, and then sold on to um, middlemen, usually two mm-hmm. or three times for transferred. Um, until the end retail buyer, um, basically the family or the husband, buys them. Um, sometimes they'll also get sold to brothels, um, depending on who the, the, the traffickers are. But okay. this is, um, yeah, so this is one kind of very common way of, of trafficking that happens, especially across the Chinese-Vietnamese border. Um, for trafficking to Europe, it's 
almost consistently the same all the time, which is why the UK. Because, um, so this is, when you talk about human condition, this is a perfect convergence of history, culture, geography. Um, so in the 19, post-1975 and in the 1990s, you had those influx of, number one, boat people, and then number two, mm-hmm. the um, export of labor to the former Soviet bloc countries. Mm-hmm. And so what that did was it created several things. Number one, it created a remittance culture, Right. So the people who made it overseas work and you send money home to your family back right. in Vietnam, right? right. And right. that still is, continues to this day. Um, last year, Vietnam, I think, was number eight or nine in the world for total remittances, legal remittances, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. which totals mm-hmm. almost $14 billion U.S. dollars, um, about 7% of our total GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, it established Vietnamese communities in cities across Europe. So not oh, Paris, okay. but also... Um, Warsaw, Berlin, Moscow, Prague, um, Amsterdam, and also London. Mm-hmm. Number three is that for the post-1975 people who fled the Vietnam, the north, the southern half of refugees ended up in refugee camps, in, um, of the both people ended up in refugee camps in Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, right? Mm-hmm. The northern mm-hmm. half ended up in Hong Kong. Which at the time was British territory. I see. And so before handover, and then a lot of these um, boat people were deemed inadmissible to other countries because they had um, unsavory backgrounds or whatever it was, the the agencies running the camps deemed them inadmissible to other countries. And so they just stayed in the refugee camps for years and years until Mm -hmm. handover. And that was when, um, you know, the, the UK government had to resettle um, everyone. And so for the ones I who weren't okay. able to be taken by other countries, they ended up being resettled in the UK. Now, okay. um, the, all of the this kind of movement, um, as I mentioned, established several things. One is the communities, two is remittances, three is it also planted the seeds for um, organized crime, Vietnamese-led, Vietnamese, overseas Vietnamese-led organized crime to flourish in Europe. Today, they are in Berlin, they're in Prague, they're in Paris, they're in the UK, they're in Scotland, they're in Russia, they're everywhere. And they control the marijuana cultivation and distribution trade, crystal meth, counterfeit goods, wildlife, and human trafficking. So um, mainly the Vietnamese who get sold into the UK are trafficked there to work as slaves in cannabis farms cannabis warehouses growing marijuana. I see. Uh-huh. Um, okay. For European okay. So um, given this situation, what, what do you guys at Pacific Links, what is your strategy? Do you hope to eradicate it or just stem the flow? Or what, what is the prevention that you are envisioning? Um, I mean, you know, of course you, you want to have your, your overarching mission to be ending human trafficking forever, right? But in reality, we know... <laughs> That right, you know, I used to be in the in the anti torture business, and uh, you know, one of my good friend and mentors said, "Torture will never end." <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, people it, being what they are. So, the same thing with trafficking. So, what are you yeah, aiming I for? Mean, so you, you look at it and you think, you know, the most valuable valuable resource in the world, and always always has been, is human resource, right? Mm-hmm. So, trafficking will always happen because people will always want to have power over others, and especially if there's profit to be made out of it. And so what we want to do is, of course, prevent it from happening as much as possible, but also help 
build um, the capacity of not just local Vietnamese civil society, but also the government, law enforcement, and other um, partners that we work with so that they can someday deal with this on their own. Because if you look at Vietnam as a developing country, Vietnam can't reach the heights that it wants to. You know, it can't be a developed country if it's still taking aid from foreign entities, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Here in America, we have problems still all the time. But you don't see, you know, Japanese NGOs coming in to try and fix our gun control problem, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. It's local, local solutions. And so that's really what we're, we're trying to aim for, is like making sure that the population... Um, is as well educated, not just about the issue, but also, you know, in their own education and empowered enough in order to take matters into their own hands and not put themselves at risk or the family members at risk. So what we really, we look at this not as a, um, a charity issue, but it's, it's a development issue. It's a problem of globalization, the bad side of globalization and development. This is one of the top obstacles to Vietnam's um, proper development. And so we, we're not a, a traditional charity, per se, but I, I would say that we are, we are a development organization. And so because we're a development organization and this is a problem of development, what, how we deal with this is looking at what are the root causes, what are the influencing factors that make someone vulnerable to being trafficked. Mm-hmm. And if we can identify that, then we are able to um, develop programs around that to, to reduce vulnerability, Right. Mm-hmm. And so our strategy is based on our own experience and also research that's been done by other um, anti-trafficking experts. So we've mm-hmm. identified five influencing factors. Number one is lack of education. So the less educated you are, the higher at risk you are for being trafficked. And I, I need to mention also that all these factors are intersectional. So they're not rarely they're rarely isolated and all mm-hmm. our programs um attack multiple almost all of them at once um so, so education number two is uh, gender so as i mentioned okay. before the gender like, mm-hmm. girls in asia young men and boys over in europe so everything we do has to um include gender um okay. number three is poverty economic situation okay where you are the higher at risk number four is identity so what's not um, gender. So if you're ethnic minority, you're higher uh-huh. risk of being trafficked. Right, you're factory right. worker, migrant worker. And number five is uh, law enforcement. How strong is, uh, how uh-huh. well trained is law enforcement, border guards, customs immigration, criminal investigation. Uh-huh. So all okay. of our programs um, mm-hmm. deal with all of these issues directly from the most grassroots level all the way up to the highest level uh, at the national okay. and international levels. Okay, so that is why you need to really reach across different industries and organizations and governments and borders to, to, to weave this network of, of, of prevention and of enforcement. I get it. Now, yeah. we have to break again for our second uh, commercial break. When we come back, Mimi, I do want to ask you about the reintegration because you guys do catch... Um, I, I hesitate to say rescue, but there are a few of these victims, you know, that do come back, that do step out of, of, of that cycle. And I, I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, what you try to do uh, with them and for them. Okay, we'll be right back. Okay.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. It's time to have a healthier relationship with money. Use it with purpose to create the life you envision. At Thinking Big Financial, your future starts right now. Services include financial planning and investment management. It's not just about the numbers. It's about how they fit into your life. Reach out to Jim to start thinking big about your own financial life. Because isn't it time? For more information, visit thinkingbigfinancial.com. That's thinkingbigfinancial.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. All right, Mimi. Reintegration. You catch them on their way back into so-called normal society into life what what do you see and what do you try to do for these girls so we um we view the the reintegration program also as a prevention program because in vietnam about 60 percent of all traffickers arrested are former victims so number one Mm. we're trying to stop the circle of trafficking number two we are trying to stop them from being re-victimized, but we also know, and this is, it goes back to this idea of like human condition and the spirit of humanity, is um, these are young, very young women and girls who have been through some of the worst experiences that any of us, you know, hopefully will never, ever go through. How can we use the fact that they've survived and turn that into something that's a strength for them, not just them and their families, but also for the country and humanity in general. And so trying to help them essentially find the silver, silver lining of this terrible, terrible, terrible experience that they've been through. Um, so when the girls return and we work closely, we don't, we don't rescue in that we don't you know, go into China and rescue. Mm-hmm. It's a very dangerous job. But we do help facilitate and we work with um, the Vietnamese border guards and law enforcement 
in order to help um, the girls come back, and then also um, with local uh, social welfare department. So for the young women who come back, um, we give them um, a safe place to live in our reintegration home. And when I say home, it's really a home. We become essentially their second families. We have a house mother. We become their big sisters, you know, their kids, right? And mm-hmm. we provide them with education and um, health care and art therapy and emotional support and yoga and meditation and um, self-confidence, life skills training, um, teaching them cooking and how to live on their own so that after they graduate from something and they leave us, whether it's to go on to higher education or to work, that they can walk around in society with their heads held high. We're trying to instill belief in them that they are not damaged goods, they are not devalued in any way, shape, or form, that they are strong. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and it, it comes out in very practical ways. Because we know, you know, in Vietnam, in Asian culture, the reason why girls are valued less than boys is because we're viewed as not being able to contribute as much to the family as boys. We're mm-hmm. viewed as a burden on the family, a strain on the family, a loss on the family rather than a gain, right? And, and so on top of that, the, the, the shame of having been, quote-unquote, defiled. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, and, and, and there's trauma and everything. And, you know, I always say that woman's honor is so precarious. Her family's right. honor rests on her honor, you know? So yep. what we're trying to do is help her bring her own honor back. We're not giving it to her. She's bringing it back to herself, right? And that um, while she, as she's doing that, she instills her own honor within her own family and then in society. And she does that in the most Asian practical way of being educated, um, of being able to earn enough money to support herself and support her family. Mm-hmm. If she's able to send money home to the family, it means that she has a higher standing in the family because now she's dependent, that her parents depend on her. Oh, so oh okay. People okay. Family. And in society, she also has a higher position because okay. if the parents are able to build a new house or buy a new motorbike, and, you know, they do what all good Asian parents do is they brag. My good daughter, my, you know, yes, obedient yes, daughter, right. I won. She mm-hmm. gave me this money. Isn't she good? She built this. She's, a, you know, she went to school and now she's a this or a that or whatever career. That is so that clever. I didn't think about that. Just beat the Vietnamese at their own game. The bragging oh, yeah, you rights. Have to, this is the only way to do that. <laughs> you, you have to work within the system to change the system. There's uh-huh. no other way to do this. Right, right. And so right. in a practical way, what that's come out with um, resulted in is that in the beginning when we first started the, the reintegration program in, uh, I believe it was 2008, um, most of the girls who came back, you know, they, they weren't well educated because they were ethnic minority or very poor and they've been gone for a significant amount of time. And so what we would do is we would put them in um, vocational training school, mainly for seamstressing or cosmetology, so like nails and hair. And then um, once they were done and graduated with a certificate, we would help them find jobs or open up their own salon. Mm-hmm. But as time went by, we started doing individual plans and looking at the individual strengths of each young woman. And I think for us, because most of the organization is made up of women and also, um, at least for the, you know, the, the, or the overseas Vietnamese who work in the organization, we're all, you know, of that, like, education is number one and 
for me personally, like I never, my parents raised me to not have any sort of belief at all that I was blessed because I was female. It was your, our daughter, you have the same blood as your brother. You are a member of our family and your duty is to bring honor to the family by getting all A's. You know, so (laughs) that's, for me, that but you're was not. Me. You don't have an MD. So what's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, I, I was in dental school. I was in dental school. I was going to be a DDS. So, you know. <laughs> so what but, happened to me? So, this is a total segue. But like, so what happened to you? How did you get here? Oh, that, that's another segment. That's a whole other. <laughs> when, when did your parents leave you? Which wave were they in? So sorry. When did which, your parents leave Vietnam? Which boat people wave? Were they riding? No, or did, they, did were, they When they did they left, get here to the U.S.? They left on a plane on April 28th, 1975. Oh, two days before. I was still running around in the streets of Saigon at that time looking for a freaking boat that would take me and my yeah. mother. So they got on the plane. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they were, they were very, very, very lucky. Very fortunate. But it's so because it's they were educated. I, it's wonderful yeah. that they gave you that message. What What is it like for you to 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 be back in Vietnam? You know, it's interesting. I've been here for over 12 years, and it was actually my father who pushed me to go to Vietnam. I had never been here until I moved to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I, because most of my family is in, in um, Paris and Switzerland. And so that's where we always went, to visit my grandparents and our cousins and everything. So we really didn't have, you know, it's, except for some distant relatives, we didn't have any, everyone we got out. Um, so I was, um, I had finished my master's and I was planning on doing my PhD, but I wanted some international field experience. And so my father was like, you need to go to Vietnam. You need to go back and help build up the country and, you know, bring honor. And, you know, they're all about honor, right? They're old. So they're button too, So they're very old school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I was like, well, I was really actually more interested in going to Northern Africa. Uh, North Africa, like Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Senegal, Cameroon, because um, I speak French. Um, but, you know, I said, okay, I'll just send my CV out and uh, whoever gives me a job first. Because um, I didn't want to move somewhere and, you know, teach English and then find a job. I wanted to start my career somewhere. And within two weeks of sending out my resume, I got a job in Da Nang. So mm-hmm. I moved from, at an NGO there, so I moved from the West Village in New York City to the mountain 12 years ago without ever having set foot in Vietnam beforehand. Right, right. And that, that was a culture shock because um, <laughs> I realized that I, not all Vietnamese people speak the same kind of Vietnamese. Right. So it, it was very, very difficult for me to communicate. Um, I see the first six months I lived there. Um, because I had to learn central Vietnamese accent. I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't understand anything. So it took a good six months before I could understand, um, the accent and communicate properly. They still don't mm-hmm. understand me, but I can understand them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. So now 10 um, plus years later, you are still there. Do you consider it home? Um, you know, I get asked this question all the time and I, uh, it's, it's one of my homes. Um, yeah. I have... I have a lot of homes, and home for me is, is it's where my stuff is, but it's also where my family is, but it's also where I lived as well. So home mm-hmm. for me is also Paris. Home mm-hmm. is also New York. Home is also Michigan. Home is Houston, because that's where my, my, um, my parents and my sister and her family live. Um, yeah. Home is Vietnam. You know, home is an airplane, because I'm always fine. Right, so right, right. It's, um, yeah. it's really, you know, kind of being a global citizen kind of thing, and... 
um, what's nice about it is that I, I don't feel rootless. I feel extremely rooted. Um, and, and because I grew up um, with parents who were so, so uh, fearful of us losing our Vietnamese roots that it was just, I mean, it was so, like our house was like little Vietnam. We weren't allowed to speak English in the house. We only ate Vietnamese food. But I grew up in a 1,000-person farm town in Michigan, and so I'm also extremely Midwestern. Out of that. <laughs> right, um, right. So, it, it was never a conflict for me. It still isn't. Um, uh-huh. I, I've never felt like anything like that. So, I feel very, um, and I think living abroad and living in different places, it, it allows you to um, not see differences in people, but you started, you start seeing what you have in common with people who are so different than you, you know? Um, and that just makes you more adaptable different situations. So you appreciate the differences, um, but then you also are able to recognize the commonalities, um, which is great. So and I think, and like, I mean, in your case, listening to you and, and thinking about your work, I would say that it also allows you for a very special kind of imagination, you know, of, of being interconnected, an imagination of, of where you stand, how you fit in the larger fabric and what difference you can make instead of being in your own little, you know, box that yeah, is so no, insulating. Absolutely. Absolutely, because I think, um, you know, I once I broke free of the, the dentist, <laughs> but, <laughs> it was, and thank uh, God for that. <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, I would have made a great dentist, but uh, uh, I love, I, but, uh, you, you know, know that I, they have it, dentists, they have a very high rate of alcoholism, so no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love going to the dentist. I, I've always loved it, and I think if I were a dentist, people would love going because my enthusiasm would just be infectious. <laughs> um, you know, by um, the way, do you know, I have a lot of friends who are dentists. You know what makes a good dentist? Piano training when you're a child. Really? I did say piano yes. for a couple of years. Well, there you go. The dexterity training, you know. Anyway, but we digress. Let's just get back for the few minutes that we have left. (laughs) But Mimi, tell me, what can we do to to, to help out? Well, number one is uh, the easiest way, of course, you know, to nonprofit is to donate. You know, nonprofits are always under-resourced. Learn more about us and more about the situation and about the nuances and then um, number one is donating, but number two is volunteering in a significant way. There's plenty of ways, especially if you're if you speak Vietnamese or no Vietnamese culture. Absolutely, you can use your help. Um, and so um, I am. I, 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 you know, I'm much older than you. I speak a little bit Vietnamese, but I'm a psychologist, which means that outside of New York City, I'm completely useless. Can I do anything over there? Absolutely, absolutely, because. <laughs> No, because, you know, mental, and you know this, in, within Asian cultures, you know, mental health is, is so taboo. And so when we're dealing with people who are traumatized, not just as victims, but also just being poor, you know, and all the associated issues that, and problems that come with growing up extreme, in, in extreme poverty, there are a lot, there's a lot of psychological damage there um, that happens that's left untreated because Asian culture just doesn't um, acknowledge mental health at least to the level where, you know, we would have counselors or therapy or, or psychologists readily available. It's just not there yet. 
Um, and so there's a lot of that that's needed. And so that's why we do kind of like these alternative therapies for um, the trafficking survivors because they're not used to sitting down and talking to people. But no, no, nobody you know, outside of New York City is used to sitting yeah. down talking to people. So, but you're talking about like really these these, these girls when they return, there's really no place, no language for them, no way for them to really process and narrate and put into meaning their experience because of the well, silence of the we're, culture. The art of therapy, I think we and we started that a couple of years ago, has been really mm-hmm. helpful because mm-hmm. I think the culture by nature is more artistic um, mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. right? You won't talk mm-hmm. about your problems, but you sing your problems out. You know? Right, That's right, me. right, 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 right. But I think also storytelling um, is a very strong, deep tradition. Absolutely. And so they do that through through um, through drawing and telling their stories through the art, um, yes. which is extremely helpful. And it might be um, metaphors. Um, it might be, you know, fairy tales, but it's it's a resolution that helps the girls a lot. Um, okay. And I think, you know, it mirrors, the resolution mirrors their own lives as well. And mm-hmm. I just want to get to mm-hmm. a quick point mm-hmm. before about um, what we're doing for the girls, the trafficking survivors, is that before, you know, they were in cosmetology school, it seems interesting, and some of them still are because they choose to do that. But because we recognize the strength in in Vietnamese, especially Vietnamese women who are down and out, you know, my mother was a refugee, my relatives were all refugees, you're refugee, you, you know the strength of a Vietnamese woman, right? And yeah. so we, we bring that into the girl's recovery um, and in her belief in herself. And as a okay. result, you have girls now who are nurses. They, they graduate from nursing mm. school. Okay. We have girls who are preschool teachers. We have girls who um, we partner with... Um, NGOs who do hospitality training, so they go on and graduate from hospitality school and work in five-star hotels and as chefs. We have one girl who just graduated from Social Work University in Hanoi and is now a social worker back in our Hamong community specializing in human trafficking prevention. And we have a young woman who graduated top of her class, of her high school class, in physics, biology, and chemistry and is now in her first year of pharmacy university and has been accepted into medical school. Okay. Great. Mimi, we have to stop very soon, but I thank you very much for giving us a glimpse into what, what is possible, you know, when people join up. And people out there, please look up Pacific Links Foundation to find out about the work that they do and to see what you can do to help out. And for my part, uh, I'm going to Vietnam. I'm going to, I don't know, knock on your door and some hut and see if you would help me and help out. <laughs> um, please, so, um, it's an amazing country. I, you know, there's a reason why I'm still there after 12 years. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, Mimi, and maybe, you know, I could catch you, you know, you know yeah. checking out the airport or something on, on the track. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for being here with thank us. You. And uh, to you all out there. Um, well, Happy New Year, and um, I will find you again in the first week of January, all by myself, speaking to you from Voice America. Goodbye for now, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel, and enjoy being alive.